0: I'm Barry Farber. Gene Shepard, across my broadcast microphone right now, is an American who has done uncommonly much to make America look better and brighter and more intellectual in the ears of other people who happen to be listening to Gene Shepard. He's. a I I take great pride in knowing Gene Shepard. I meet people who say, gee, do you really know Gene Shepard? I say, yes, yes, I really do. And there is no groupie chasing any rock star who could possibly give me more pleasure than somebody in intelligent, an ambassador, perhaps, a captain of industry, a war hero, even astronauts who can't believe that I have achieved the distinction of actually knowing Gene Shepard. Well, a lot of people know him from his broadcasts, from his books, from his appearances, and I know him at close range. I shared an office with him, and the one thing that interests people who love Gene Shepard most when I tell them is this. This knocks him out every time. They say, what's he like off the air, thinking that when Gene comes on, he presses a button and he's Gene Shepard, but when he's off, he's lacrimose and... uh um, you know walks around and does mean things yeah exactly <laughs> sort of depressed uh, lugubrious uh-uh Gene Shepard does not know when he's on the air and off the air he is the same personality off as on and I don't understand that's a terrible you thing here. to say to me <laughs> I don't understand no, who you are thank I, you if I had a microphone I'm glad you say thank you because it means you understand the import of the remarks. but I don't understand where you get the entire in- you sustain the intensity the intensity. That's a good question. Uh, it's hard to say. I, I think that uh, any good performer, uh, and, and you're one too, Barry. By the way, I have to pass this back to you because I've known you a long time, and I've never known anybody who worked as much and got as uh, constant uh, kicks out of his work. Uh, I think the the I think people do things for. Many reasons and I think a lot of people uh, become a performer because the idea of being a performer and being famous and uh, earning a good income fascinates them. those people are, are ultimately not going to have the intensity. other people do things because the thing itself is the only thing they're interested in all us, the, all the rest of it is uh, is uh, a side issue uh, that that sure of. Uh, a, a great actor acts because he, he he's intensely involved in acting, so he makes a half a million dollars a picture. But often he's not even interested in that; would do it for nothing. I remember when John F. Kennedy was killed. You and I worked for the same radio station. We shared the same office. Yeah. They had these stupid little divisions and partitions. I think they cost a dollar ninety eight cents per square kilometer. For- yeah, you yeah, you get them at FW grants and you <laughs> plug them in the floor. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember hearing that we were preempted. Now they've got smaller offices. Go ahead. (laughs) I remember hearing that we were preempted. When John F. Kennedy was assassinated, we did not have to go on the air that Friday night. And I said, thank God. talk to my next of kin without breaking up, much less go on the air. And I remember you came into the office angry on November 22nd, 1963. You said, how do you like this? For the first time in ages we have something to talk about and they won't let us talk. You know, well, that's often the case in broadcasting. (laughs) Uh, I remember that very well that night. You know, I was playing a college that night, too. I was playing uh, North... Jersey North Central College North Jersey College anyway right across the river and that was some night but uh, intensity Barry I, uh, when you bring it up uh, technically I think intensity means involvement if you're involved in your work you have intensity if you're involved in saying something you want to do this there is intensity it's like uh if, if you find that, that uh, you're... It's like being a ball player. You, you've been an athlete. Now, now I played ball. And I well, only played real ball. You played baseball. Yeah, well, I, I played ball. Well, of course, you were a wrestler. And you know that, that a wrestler, uh, a, a, a competitive wrestler, that, that, that intensity and, and, and concentration uh, and motivation, involvement, is all one. And the guy that lacks one of those elements is not going to win. He may have fantastic physical... Uh, conditioning. but in baseball, it's the same way uh, a, a person with great involvement is, is uh, he, he may not win, but he's going to be awful tough to beat <laughs> because he, he just never stops. Uh, Pete Rose of the Cincinnati Reds is an example of that. Rose is, he doesn't have outstanding physical characteristics, but he's one of the most lethal ball players that have played in modern times. Uh, then, the, then he goes, you see you see other people with great physical characteristics that don't have the involvement, and in they're in and out performers. Richie Allen, when he's when he's on, he's unbelievable. When he's not, he makes you look like uh, he makes you feel like if you were playing in a Class D league, which he should be on those nights. But intensity is a constant thing. It's. A, difficult thing to explain Barry and I, I, I look forward every day to doing my show and to writing when I write I look forward to it I don't dread it I don't say to myself oh what a drag I've got to do this again we have here on the broadcast table a document entitled that great inverted bowl of darkness by Gene Shepherd. it's a teleplay which is going to be done on uh, the public broadcasting system this year it's a big uh, series of American playwright uh productions that are funded by a big grant it's a play Barry do you want to read the first page can we take the audience backstage uh, yeah you know, read, to to first read the first television plays on this television play Del- the plays. let's see who can propel better pictures television or radio a dark, rainy highway somewhere in the United States. In the distance, two bright headlights rush toward the camera. The sound of the car gets louder and louder. That great inverted bowl of darkness flashes across the as uh, The sleek sports car swooshes past the camera with a roar. Cut to a picture of the driver as the windshield wipers strive vainly to keep the rain from obstructing. You don't see the driver. I don't know why he says cut to the driver. That's a misprint. No, it says cut to... I thought it said picture. It says POV. What does that mean? Uh point of view. Ah, forgive me. <laughs> yeah, forgive me. the driver. As the windshield wipers... You're the driver, in other yeah, words. strive vainly to keep the rain from obstructing the view of the road ahead. Camera zooms into speedometer, which starts to climb towards seventy five miles an hour. A camera from hood of the car zooms past the white night. yeah, to find the narrator peering out into the darkness as a large truck roars past in the darkness the car speeds up to a faster speed cut to point of view looking out at the wet highway speeding past all of a sudden two lights appear bearing down directly in front of the car there's a tremendous squeal as the car swerves to miss the oncoming car as the lights rush up to fill the screen a large explosion wipes the screen to black silence A large soft explosion of red fills the screen and then fades to black. A faint light appears at the end of a long tunnel. The camera moves toward the light until it moves into a room that glows white from the ceiling and floor, filling the room. A rack after rack of film cans stored stretching into infinity. The camera slowly moves past the film cans, all marked with social security numbers. In other words, he's in heaven. And Heaven is an infinite film library. We will rejoin in Heaven. First, W.O.R. New York. I'm Barry Farber, Gene Shepard. I don't even want to spoil your train of thought. We were talking about your play, dream <laughs> all of a sudden, before the credits have even finished flashing on the screen, In Heaven, which is... Well, you don't know all whether it's Heaven. It, it, you have to assume that because the narrator then comes in... It says, in a a curious, desperate voice, you can read that narrator's line down there. Where is St. Peter? No, no, he doesn't shout. He says, what? Why St. Peter? Where's St. Peter? Be a director. What? Where's St. Peter? I I never had the idea it was dark. It's dark. Maybe I'm... No, couldn't be. It goes on forever and ever. Film cans. See, it just goes for infinity. Millions of cans. Billions, trillions. It stretches out into eternity. I never expected this. I never thought... And then the camera dollies into a film can. With unexpected explosion of color, we get the MGM logo and then a short snippet of a biblical epic grade B movie. Someone is carrying large plastic slabs with the Ten Commandments. It quickly disappears, and the camera continues its truck past the film can's narrator. Look at that. Uh, Isn't that the late, late movie? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to do this play on the air because I'm going to wait for PBS to do it, but it's... uh I'm very very excited about it because it's a, it's something that has been in the works for some time. And when uh, they accepted it, it was quite an honor because uh, there's other American playwrights that uh, they're considering works of uh, people who uh, you know famed Broadway writers, and, and uh, it's an interesting experience. And I'm, gonna, I'm I can hardly wait to see it on the screen because it's uh, it's an attempt to use the medium in a way that uh, hasn't often been used, I think. You know, there are stories of yours which are obviously composites and allegories and fantasies and recollections that you don't even say are true, but I believe them. Oh, well, I hope uh, everybody's supposed to... See, when, when you're reading a, a, a good novel, Barry, or good, uh, watching a good play, uh, it is requisite that the audience should not suspend belief, but thoroughly believe in other words, you, you, you plunge into the world of that character or that uh, play, uh, and it is true. It is true. Mm. All right, but my point was if, if it's literally true, that's something else. There's only one story you told. Forgive me, Just uh, let's just leave a moment of uncharacteristic silence <laughs> on radio right here, because I want to write down a couple of words. Shep recruited as aerodynamic expert. I'll get to that story a little bit later on. Anyhow, one story you tell is truth, which I can't. Well, I've told many stories that are true. I know, but there's one story that you tell as a truth, which I I cannot believe. Okay, I want to get to that. We can get back to that great inverted bowl of darkness. I don't mind giving the audience a preview. (laughs) You tell a story that's literally too good to be true. You worked in a steel mill. In Indiana that's what this cover that's what reminded me I can see your hard hat there and you left the steel mill and went into radio you grasshoppered from station to station across the country you wound up at the major radio station in the major city of the United States you broadcast happily ever after you wrote best-selling stories prize-winning stories books you made appearances and you became an international figure. You scuba-dived uh, south of lot from Israel to Jordan to, to Egypt, Egypt without ever coming up for air. And I think you even ventured into Saudi Arabia. Right? We so we at, yeah, we landed oh, on, on the yeah. beach in, 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 in Egypt. I don't want to go into that. Right. But <laughs> There's one story you tell is that once upon a time, you came back with a television crew 25 years after you had worked in that same steel mill. That's right, as a teenager. Yeah. That's correct. 25 years later, and you saw while you were there filming a guy who knew you from 25 Well, oh, he came up to me. It was funny. Well, you know, when you go into the mill, uh, there are certain safety, national safety regulations. Uh, I used to work in the open hearth when I was a kid. And, uh, that's a... A world under its own, and, and in the steel mill again, it's like something that it's it's like being a submariner. If you've ever been in a submarine and worked in a submarine, there's, you can't tell anybody else about it. It's a private experience. That's like the mill. And one day uh, we were shooting in the open hearth, and we had our cameras all set up, and I was standing in the back there while the crew was setting up and they were taking test shots into the you know the into the uh, the ovens and stuff and a lot of bright, brilliant flames going on. and Of course, in the middle, you're issued uh, w- uh, fireproof coats uh, by regulation. Everybody wears that's It's a long, fireproof coat. It's kind of a jacket. It looks, de- looks like denim, but it's fireproof. And you have a hard hat and the, and the uh, safety glasses. And all I'm just standing there, safety shoes on, which you have to wear by regulation. And I'm standing there watching them set up. And uh, all of a sudden, a couple of other workers are work, walking around. Their guys are looking the whole scene over here. You the know, guys that are actually working the mill. And one of them comes up to me and he says, uh, Hey, he said, what, uh, what are you doing? I says, so it looks like they're setting up a TV show. He said, Well yeah? You're going to shoot a show here, huh? I says, yeah. And he took, takes a long look at me. He says, uh, he hey, he said, uh, when not they put you on a day shift? <laughs> and I says, well, 25 yeah. I years. Says, I says well, 25 I years. I said, well, I'm on the day shift. He says, he says, weren't you at the tin mill once? And I says, yeah, I was at the tin mill. He says, you're on the days now. He says, when did when, you come on day shift? And uh, I says, oh, you know, I says, I'm, I'm uh, i I I just got shifted over from the from the number one swag yard. and I'm on days now. So uh, I said, well, okay. He says, hey, he so oh, listen. He said, uh, who's who, who's doing the television show? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I, I was playing along with it then. At that point, I says, well, I don't know. I guess it's some educational channel or something. And he says, uh, yeah, I bet they got some don't don't know nothing about the mill. He says, they guys come in, you know, and I never know nothing about the mill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and at that point, <laughs> I, the director turns, and he says, come on over. So I went over, see, and I started to do the thing. I did my, the opening of the show. By the way, this television series is coming back on in July, and the first show will be this steel mill show. So I did this fantastic bit in front of the camera, you know, with the devil and the flames flying and talking about the mill, and I came off camera and this guy's stunned. And, and I walked back over there, and he said, uh, he's looking at me, he says, you, you've done that on the, on, on the camera? And I said, yeah. He says, how do you get a job like that? And he says, you work? I says, well, you know, some got it, some ain't. And I walked on, and uh, as far as he knows, I'm still some mysterious guy that works in the steel mill and at the same time mysteriously is doing a television show. But he remembered me from the mill. Two fantastic. Be, so not be, fantastic. Be, as a matter of fact, really Lee really Brown is, is, in the, is in the control room. Lee was the co-producer of that television show. And she was present when that happened. Mm-hmm. It's an mm-hmm. absolute true story. Glad you had (laughs) witnesses. Absolutely. And uh, I was astounded, you know, because I certainly didn't remember him, but he he remembered me from the mill. Of course, I was wearing my hard hat. Have you seen my hard hat back in the office? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the one I had in the mill. They gave it back to me again. They keep them there, you know, (laughs) and my name and everything on it. (laughs) Once you've been in the hold of a ship, you don't forget it. Mm -hmm. Shep, uh, Gene, you told a story one time about an explosion, uh, of ham radio. Do you remember that before World War II? <laughs> right before World War II, actually it was right after World War II This has happened. Uh, you mean when my, my ham station got blown up by lightning? No, when all the people of the world oh. started cross-fertilizing. Oh, that was, uh, uh, there were several things. Uh, yeah, I, that I've told a lot of stories about ham radio. I don't know which one you're referring to at this point. The one where everybody from the different countries involved, you yeah. know, started sniping at each other. Oh, that was fantastic scene. Well, I was I was just a listener then. See, I was a kid, and and uh, ham radio, of course, is ham radio worldwide. Uh, and you know, this is a very little known uh, thing in history uh, that I've never seen anybody write about it since. But worldwide, all of a sudden, one afternoon, the world amateurs, in those days the German hands were on and all the various hands around the world were still on. Uh, you could tell the advancing movement of the world's problems as country after country was going off the air. But one day, just out of the blue, uh, it broke out on 20 meters. There was a giant international rhubarb where hams were hollering back and forth at each other all over the world. Then it quieted down and disappeared. (laughs) Guys were hollering from from various countries. It was a fantastic moment. Uh, And I I remember that vividly. Is that the story you're talking about? But, of course, it was much more complex when I told the story. I'm just giving you the outline here. When you were telling stories, not for 45 minutes at a time, but for five and a half hours at a time, all by yourself with no guest to feed off of and bounce off of and play with. Did you ever just round of things to report? Well, I have one uh, one uh, slogan, Barry. If I ever run out of anything inside of me that is uh, story material and fantasy material, I'll go in the insurance business. And I have not yet applied at Equitable. All right. When All right. we uh, reconvene, I want to tell the one story that reminds me uh, what you just said triggers this story it's one of the few stories where I had to park the car because I knew the other character involved he's since passed away you didn't even mention him then but I called the next day and said Gene which radio salesman was it and you told me and I got an additional laugh because that was almost too good to be true well uh, you want me to tell that story when briefly we, when we reconvene okay. I want you to tell it unbriefly <laughs> I want you to tell it totally okay first I'm Barry Farber, Gene Shepherd, my partner for this expedition. Gene, uh this was one of the stories that I remember most. Uh the story of you being taken by a radio time salesman to meet a potential sponsor. You don't go on many expeditions like that. You are nobody's Patsy, nobody's sycophant. You don't <laughs> like to call on well, sponsors any more than de Gaulle liked to call on Low-ranking British attachés in London during World War II. Well, I just feel that a, that a sponsor has his function and I have mine. Right. Separation of church and That's state. right. Yeah. I agree with the New Yorker magazine in that respect. <laughs> so uh, anyway, one day I, I had just uh, just come to New York, and uh, uh, this you know this great vast city is uh, is a heady... Brew when you when you've come from the outreaches and and so I I was fascinated. I'm walking around town and uh, I I had I had a luncheon date. You see with this with this elegant salesman who uh, no, was uh, Paul he, he looked uh, he was a great guy and he had silver hair, uh, tremendous uh, presence, and he he looked a little bit like a UN ambassador. Oh, you know the, 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 and not from an emerging nation oh, evil from one of the great ones from a nation that had emerged about 300 centuries ago and took charge he and uh, he, he'd been he'd been educated in, in an elegant English prep school you know did you know that no, him? Huh? yes he was and uh, he very elegant man he looked like a like the kind of man that plays uh, uh, the banker in a Class A movie starring Richard Burton and tremendous had wavy silver hair and beautifully cut suits. The kind of guy who made you feel like your necktie wasn't all right. Yeah, and, and a very, very elegant man and he had this, this, the ease of a man who is elegant and knows he is and so, on this day, I had lunch, a lunch date with him so I was a little early so I, I walked out on the street and I'm walking around in the Times Square area and as you know the Times Square there's millions of little porny joints and all kinds of strange places where they sell sneezing powder and, and uh, Japanese 98 cent cameras that take mini pictures the size of matched heads and stuff like that so, so <laughs> I'm fascinated I'm looking in all these places and, and I'm drifting along 6th Avenue in this terrible neighborhood and there's guys you know, going in and out of doorways selling indescribable products and and uh, I, I stopped in front of this little shop where they were playing over and over again. They had this laugh record, which they were playing. I'm looking in the window there, and and suddenly I'm aware of somebody standing next to me, looking in the window. I'm looking at this collection of, of exploding cigars and stuff, and and all of a sudden he said, uh, "Why well, say?" He said, uh, "Don't we have a lunch date?" And I looked, and it's the salesman, this elegant man. I'm embarrassed. And here I'm meeting this man. I hardly knew him. He was such a you know, great star at this great radio station. And I'm meeting him, and here I am standing here looking at exploding cigars. And he said, uh, I uh, come on, I want to do a little shopping in here anyway. I'm glad I ran into you, so we might as well go in right now and do it together. So we walked into the store. I couldn't believe he was going to do some shopping in this place where they sold sneezing powder. So he walked in and apparently the guy knew him. He so hello, how are you? And he said, Oh, uh, has it come yet? And at that point the guy reaches down under the under the counter and whatever it was, they had ordered it by mail. And this is a real aficionado item. And he pulls it out and it's the most unbelievable bath mat I ever saw in my life. I mean, it's let's put it this way, uh, you have seen well endowed ladies in the center fold of Playboy. Well if you took their most prominent features, <laughs> I mean, rich, magnificent, and poured them all together, 36 of them, row on row, in a, in, a, in a foam rubber bath mat in flesh, magnificent, true human color. You, you, it was just a tremendous thing. He pulled it out, and he said, here it is, and it's all, all ready. Well, the salesman, I was very impressed. He, he turns to me and he says, Not that, what do you think of that? I said, well, it's, it's impressive. <laughs> it certainly is. I mean, step out of your bath onto that, and it's uh, really something. So <laughs> he says, well, he says, uh, he pays for it. It was five ninety eight. I remember specifically what it cost. You know, you, when you're having a strange experience, your mind works like a shutter, <laughs> like a Nikon camera. <laughs> you see everything. So the guy rolls it up. He rolls it up into a long roll. It was about, about a yard across. It was a big thing. So he rolls it all up into a nice roll, and he takes this wrapping paper, which he rolls right around it, and tucks the ends in. It was a nice tube now. It looked like a tube of wallpaper or something. So at that point, we go out uh, out on the street, and we walk down the street. I'm not mentioning this at all at this point. I don't know what to say about it. So we walk down the street, and we, we get to this elegant French restaurant. You know, there's a certain kind of french restaurant in the big cities in america that has a green marquee that sticks out over the sidewalk and that means money (laughs) expensive though any restaurant that begins with the word la you know is going to be really high powered and so we go we go into this this restaurant and and it's rich and dark. The interior you could smell. It's 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 one of these these elegant restaurants where people meet to consummate great deals and trysts in the afternoon. And there's a waiter named Luigi, head <laughs> waiter. So we walk in and he checks this thing at the check. You know, there's a little check room there. And so he checks it, and uh, he checks his hat. He wore this elegant homburg. And uh, I didn't have anything to check. You see? So I, we walked in and we met the sponsor, who was also another elegant man. And we sat for fifteen minutes drinking martinis. And, and, and as we as we as we met, of course, at that point I was no martini drinker, and I still am not. I'm a I'm a one a once a week martini man. <laughs> but martinis were flowing. I'll tell you, water never flowed like this. They were bringing them to us in two gallon jugs you know, with ice floating them. And uh, he kept, Luigi kept saying, you wish you refills a drink, and he'd pour a little more in there. And my friend is knocking down the martinis, and he's enjoying it, and the whole luncheon was getting sort of surreal. It's, everything's drifting around, and the, and the, the sponsors are saying, my God, I think it's a great idea. We'll get these banjo players, and you my wife loves banjos. And so it got very, very cozy for about an hour and a half, and finally the luncheon is over. It's now almost three o'clock. You know, these luncheons go a long time. And my friend is, he's, you know, this elegant uh, salesman who I I was very impressed by. At this point, he has gotten very effusive, and he doesn't even know I'm with him anymore. He's Mm -hmm. with his high-level friends, and we start drifting out, and we get to the hat check girl. And we stand there by the hat check girl, and... He gets his hat, and with that he goes out on the street. It's out there on the, on the street. The cars are going by. And the hat checker says, oh, your friend, he has, left, uh, he has left his package. And all these men are behind me, these elegant men who are leaving with me. And she hands me the package, and as she hands it, she says, here is your package. They think it's mine. She says, here is your package. Your, your, your package is here. And she gives it to me, and at that point, the wrapping paper comes off, this fantastic bath mat unrolls in this elegant restaurant, <laughs> and here I am standing with a with a, with a five foot by thirty six inch gigantic bath mat unroll. And I couldn't roll it up. It, as I rolled it up, it kept springing out, and these people are all looking at me. <laughs> I get, out, I get out on the street, and I've got the, finally I stuck it under my arm. I've got the bath mat under my arm. I've seen the most obscene looking thing you ever saw in your life. And I, and I you know, and I don't know what to say. These people are the hmm, One guy's with this elegant looking girl, and there I've got this thing. So I get out on the street, and my friend is out there hailing a cab, and he takes a look at me, and he says, he says well, where'd you get that, Dan? He doesn't even remember getting it. He says, where the hell did you get that? He jumps in a cab and takes off. there I was, outside of the most elegant restaurant in New York, with an obscene bath mat, and and trying to skulk down the street and look like, you know, somehow this thing had just attached itself to me. I didn't have it. And that was one of the most, I must say, I have to say, one of the most uh, searing experiences. Next only to the time that I went to an elegant restaurant to meet a sponsor, and my pants began to dissolve. I don't know what happened. I had a pair of nylon pants, and there was something in the air, and my pants literally were dissolving on me. Wait, this reminds me of another story you told on the air one time where you went to do a voice over at a big advertising agency full of the kind of elegant uh, uh, advertising guy you were just talking about, and all I remember is you. I don't even remember much about that one, but I remember it being wildly hilarious. Do you remember? Uh, uh, does this ring a bell? Well, uh, I have put done a right couple button. of shows on that. Uh, I remember being in a voiceover. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And all the famous men, all the famous actors in New York were all sitting there, all of us sitting in a line, and the director came out. And I, you know, I'm very impressed, all these elegant actors, Broadway actors. You know, a lot of people don't know that Broadway actors and film actors are all doing commercials. Uh, without any name credit, they do voices and things. There's a lot of money in that. And so, I'm sitting with all these guys, and I don't know what the commercial's about to be. And with that, the, the, uh, director comes out, and he says, well gentlemen, he said, here's the script, and he hands us all this script. Uh, each one of us got this script, and it opened with us making a barking sound. <laughs> barking like a dog. So he walked up the line and all these elegant English actors and these men with a hundred years and the old Vic, he says, now, uh, let's let's, each one of you, let's hear your bark. And I said, I have barked right next to Rex Harrison. (laughs) You remind me of two stories. What's that? Two stories. Uh, Again, button pushing because you tell two or three of these stories every night of your life. I am literally staggered that you have any tolerance for being asked to recollect, much less the ability to recollect. Mm -hmm. When we reconvene two on the agenda. One, the time you were recruited as an aerodynamic engineer. And the other the time you walked out of a radio station with a famous national newscaster and said, gee weird, the weather's kind of funny. And he said, well, of course, it's those men who live in the center of the earth, the hollowed-out portion in the hole near the North Pole. Uh, <laughs> you recollect, I, I've got a take on both, right? Okay, okay, we'll explore them when we reconvene. First, W.O.R. New York. I'm Barry Farber in the company of Gene Shepard, the broadcaster I admire most in the United States of America. Gene Shepard is more than a broadcaster. He's a writer. He gives performances before live groups. He's a playwright. He's a philosopher. He's a novelist. Gene. Uh, Barry, can I ask you a question before yeah. we go any mm-hmm. further? Uh, I, see, I don't consider myself a broadcaster. Uh, uh, I, I use the you know the media for what I do uh, sometimes I do it on stage and so on but you are a broadcaster and I'm just curious uh, when did you get the urge to be uh, to be a broadcaster to be in the media funny uh, I was working for Tex McCrary uh, who you know and who admires your work uh, I was getting guests for him and I just couldn't imagine that there could be such a job. You touched on this earlier. I just couldn't imagine working. You know, you once taught me uh, not to interview baseball players. Never interview a baseball player. Interview men who play baseball for a living. Sounds, sounds like an abstraction, but if you'll take a deep breath and grasp the concept, then you'll realize it's a whole new superhighway to a different kind of human interest, right? And a different kind well, of Well, it's much more real, too, and, and truthful. Yeah. Well, the idea of just asking questions, uh, of just ventilating your curiosity, uh, is an, uh, it's the intellectual equivalent of free love. with uh, With with nothing but attractive mates (laughs) Mm -hmm. well in other words you you, your your involvement with Tex McCrary uh started this whole thing absolutely just getting him guests and watching him walk into a studio and talk and sitting in the control room being on the telephone hearing the audience feedback and ask questions incidentally was mm -hmm. he a fighter pilot Tex McCreary was attached to the Air Force. I don't think he was a fighter pilot. Uh, He was uh, like public information for the Air Force. You know why I asked that? I was reading a a, a very interesting history recently of the air war in the Pacific uh, during World War II. And uh, there was an account, it was was specifically about fighter pilots primarily. And there was an account of an engagement of, I believe, the Major Richard Bong, who was a World War II top ace, uh, had a wingman at one time, and uh, it was a big involved battle that they had with a pair of aircraft. And his wingman, wingmate, was Tex McCrary. Really? Yes. I wouldn't be surprised. And I was just curious whether or not he uh, he was a a fighter pilot. Well, you read a book called Giants in the Earth that affected you, Tex McCray was one of the giants of the air. He led the first expedition of American correspondents into Hiroshima while it was still smoking a few days after, uh, or a few hours after the first atomic bomb went off. Well, right? He, right? he was a CRO right? then. Or yeah. PIO, right? yeah. Remember those cards during World War II that had silhouettes? playing cards that had silhouettes of planes, our planes, their planes. The object was to learn whether an aircraft is theirs or ours. They still do that. From the silhouette. Yeah. McCleary invented that. That's you know. called the weft uh, system. Mm. Uh, wings, elevator, fuselage, tail, weft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they uh, that's still done. That's, of course, aircraft recognition uh, is very important to an Air Force performer. Well, incidentally, uh, let's take the audience backstage a little bit. There are very few people that you can look at in life and say you were right and I was wrong without feeling a pinch in the ego. You're one of the few people I can look to and say by golly, guy, I wish I had understood when you told me. I will not mention the name of the celebrity but I'll tell it because there's no need to throw off on her. Yeah. But the story goes like this. I've joined... A radio station it was over 12 years ago you were already at that radio station that radio station had a very alert sales department they wanted to know what the new guy was going to do you know mm-hmm. I did not before I came to that radio station interview many celebrities uh, I interviewed people who were engrossing but not impressive There's a big difference between engrossing an audience and impressing an audience. Pick the top ten celebrities. You could turn the dial and hear one of them and yell to your wife, Hey, listen, who's on? (laughs) And 15 seconds later, you'd both turn the dial. with a nice little warm residual glow as to who you heard, but you didn't want to listen to any more. On the other hand, you could take people you've never heard of before talking about real important things and... Even though you didn't know their names and their names didn't impress you, it was engrossing. Well, I was on the side of engrossment, not impressiveness. Mm -hmm. But the first week I joined the radio station that you worked at, to pander and please the sales staff, I lined up the biggest bone marrow liquefying celebrities I could find. You know? (laughs) Yeah. And I remember you saying, Why do you do it? That's not your show. Why do you bring on these big makers and shakers? You shouldn't. And I said, "Gene, for the soul staff, I want them to know that I'm okay, you know. I, just for a week, just for a week, I'll interview. And then you. I'll do my real show yeah, after that. precisely. Yeah. And you said, no, that's precisely when you should have stepped forward in your real colors. That's right. If they don't like you, then they'll never like you. And uh, I think this is true of anybody in life. I think, I think, if you if you present uh, what you consider the most far out aspect of your personality, right from the start, people are then going to be relieved when you become sane. <laughs> and the real, you know, I, I mean it, and I'm glad that you you remember that lesson. Do you remember? Oh, that? of course I do. I've been I've been preaching that lesson to many many people who who come in to any situation. They'll go to an audition, for example. Look, uh, hey, so look, look I'm mean, I wasn't. Abnegating my religion. I had nothing against interesting people merely because they were celebrities. You know what, Fred? I was deliberately overshifting in favor very, of the big name just for a week to convince the sales staff that I was non toxic. And know? it's wrong. In yeah. fact, I'll never forget a, a late friend of mine, Frank Lesser, uh, of Guys and Dolls fame and How to Succeed Without Trying. Remember that in business? Mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. great guy. I, I really, really did love Frank Lesser. And one night, uh, Lesser and I were sitting in a theater, and he was auditioning people. And this was for a new musical he was about to do. It was later a fantastic success. As a matter of fact, it was How to Succeed. So we're sitting in the, in the, the darkened theater seeing these, these people are coming up. And I was doing a lot of Broadway acting and performing in those days. And uh, so I'm sitting with him, Frank. I'm just sitting next to him. we're talking and, and uh, we'd had lunch and, and these kids were going up and singing his stuff See? and Frank says God he turns to me and he says you know every last one of these has come up here uh, and they've looked in the, in the library for something they think Frank Lesser is going to like they always try to cater to his ego by singing a Frank Lesser tune and all that so he stopped one in the middle and says now wait a minute and the kid is up there singing something from, from guys and dolls he says hold on a minute now the kid stopped. He says, come on down here. And the kid walked and he's scared. He thinks either he's going to get thrown out of the theater or he's going to get the job. So he walks and I He says, what, what, Mr. Lesser? He says, look. He says, I've heard that song 12,000 times. And he says, I've heard it sung by the biggest names on Broadway. Why do you sing that? <laughs> he says, why did you bring something that I never heard before? He said, look, come on back tomorrow and bring back what you like to sing. Hmm. And to me, this is a very important lesson. And uh, I have always applied it in my work, really. And I'm glad you remember that lesson, Barry, because you have followed it. Well, if I had it to do again, and if the five most thunderous big names in the world said, Barry, you don't know me. I know that you're starting a new challenge, and I'd like to join you in your first few days. I'd say thanks uh, later on sometime. Uh, but yeah, I think, uh, I think, first of all, I think most big names are thunderous bores, uh, not, uh, not because they are a big name, but often because they're a big name. In fact, often a person who gets to be a great celebrity has answered questions so many times. It's like, wrote Help me out here. I knew there were two stories I wanted to get from you before we parted company. One is about the newscaster who told you about the <laughs> hollow space in the earth. That I remember. There was another one I posed at you the same time I posed that one. I forgot where it is momentarily. Like well, here. Lord, I'll tell you that story about that. You know, <laughs> we'll be right back. I, I, yeah, precisely. Thank you. First, Gene, tell me that story, and I'm going to be paying close attention. I hope... Uh, back onto my recollection flashes the other story that i asked you about you're talking about the great newscaster yeah. you know i think one of the things that our country has that sets it apart from a lot of others is we really believe there are experts and uh we, <laughs> we really do and they're being interviewed constantly on everything from uh, sex to uh, interspatial travel we really believe people know about these things And uh, I was no different, I was a kid, and I had just gotten this job in a television, it was a television station, by the way, and they did this great network feed uh, every night. This famous, world-famous newscaster uh, did a a feed, and he had this tremendous voice, and he spoke with unbelievable authority. Uh, He's no longer with us, Uh, he's he's passed into the great beyond, but uh, he was a big name at the time and uh, he had the kind of delivery that, that the minute he came on and said good evening and now the news you were getting the news and it was coming from the fountainhead and you had a feeling that when he said things and in Egypt tonight he had invented Egypt you know? <laughs> he really he was He'd travel around and give these lectures on, on, uh, on great international problems and stuff and so I was assigned one night to do the television commercials on his show and they were live commercials for this this famous beer company so i'd auditioned and and i was doing the commercials and so he didn't deign even to talk to the announcers and people who worked on the show with him he had a had a frock coat practically on his mind at all times and he'd finished the the broadcast and you know, there'd be pictures of us on the screen. You to see the pictures of the guys sitting around the news desk, you know, and the, <laughs> and the ticker tapes are going. And he'd finish the broadcast and he'd say, good. He'd say, his final, his final line was great. I'll use another name. He'd say, and so goes the world tonight. This is H.B. Grubbage, signing off. Oh uh, boy, I mean it was, it was not Caltoborn. No, certainly no. it wasn't Keltenborn, but he had a he had a that Keltenbourne esque kind of delivery. It was certainly not Caltonborn. At that point, one night both of us were in the in the elevator at the same time, which usually didn't happen because I had to come on usually afterwards and do the commercial when he would leave another commercial and but this night we were both in the elevator. Very impressed with the great man. And he said, uh, so would you care to have a drink? And I said, "Uh, I'd be very pleased to, sir. He said, well, let's go across the street over to Jimmy's, which was the elegant hangout. All these top newscasters hung out. And so we'd go out into the street. I was about to have a great educational experience, which had never, you know, never, never occurred to me I would have that night. Here's a man who was a world-renowned expert in everything. I mean, you couldn't believe this man. He had his feet on the ground, you know, buried in the ground with roots, We walk out in the street, and it was a curious, kind of a cold, clammy day in in mid-July. It was a very odd day. It felt like it was going to snow, (laughs) some crazy thing like that. I said, gee, this is very interesting weather, very unusual weather for this time of year, don't you think? I was making conversation. Well, not really. Of course, you know why this is. I said, no. Well, uh... Are you playing with the works of Professor H.G. Harvin Gordon? I says, <laughs> <This is> why? Well, <laughs> no, not really. Wow. I'd like to tell you that if you understood his works, you realize that uh, the entire center of the earth is occupied and is, is uh, inhabited by beings who uh, at times can control the upper atmosphere through various uh, uranium deposits which are in the heart of the Earth. Of course, this is why the Earth, if you understand, is that we know that the Earth is kind of a heated core because of this uranium, and uh, these uh, beings are occasionally doing these things to the weather due to the fact that they resent the uh, the uh, despoiling of the atmosphere which we are doing. And I said, you mean are people living under the ground? Of course. He says, any man of intelligence understands the works of Professor H.G. And, uh, and, uh, and I, said, well, I said, really, there's people living under the ground? He said, yes, in fact, uh, there is an elevator right here in this town that uh, some of us have suspected that is in one of the major buildings here in town, that that elevator can take you directly to these people. I said, well, gee, that's very interesting, sir. Uh, some night. He said, some night the truth will come out. Some it'll all come out, and uh, the works of Professor H. Oppenheimer will, of course, then be vindicated. And he went across the street and says, "Here's the man. that means <laughs> it's a great expert. Yeah. He believes that there are beings under the earth that are sending electricity yeah. into the clouds." Yeah. He later wrote books uh, about this kind of thing. He certainly did. Yeah. I remember. Very scary. So- I, you agree that isn't fiction? You no, know. I know. About. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. I remember my last story and I just have time to weasel in under the wire here uh, button pushing again this is just one story from one of your radio shows about the time where you got an assignment as an actor yeah. where you had to memorize a highly technological script oh sure do you know what I mean? I certainly you know do yeah uh, when I first came to town, of course, you understand that i i was not a—I uh, have to repeat again, Barry. I was not a broadcaster. I was trained at a uh, at a midwestern classical theater school, and I came to town as an actor. I was brought to town by Leonard Sillman, really. Uh, new Faces on Broadway, and uh, I was doing all kinds of. Uh, freelance acting. I did uh, I did some plays on the 41st Street Theater. You remember I did Voice of the Turtle and a lot of things here in town. And uh, my agent called me one day and he said, listen, he says, I've got this fantastic job. He says, don't say a word about it. It's hush, hush. And I said, what is it? And he said, well, come on over to the office. He says I got a script. So I go over there. I it's some kind of a play that they're working on. And they don't want to get out. And I take this script and I can't believe it. It's a lecture. It's a lecture on a, a specific type of jet engine, an aerodynamic <laughs> concept of a jet engine, very complicated, complex thing. And I said, well, what's this? He says, well, he said, uh, go on over to this office in Midtown. He said, they want to look at you, and uh, they want you to read a few lines of it to see whether you can do it. So I said, fine. So I figure again, it's still a play. I, I, I still didn't know. So I went to the Midtown office, and here I am all dressed up, in my blue suit, my dark tie, and I go up to the 98th floor, wherever it was, and I get out and I go to this room. And here in the room, instead of theatrical producers, is a group of very really official-looking businessmen all sitting around. And they're waiting for me. One of them said, uh, well, uh, Mr. Shepard, would you uh, care to read a page or two of the script? So I said, yes, I will read it. So I opened it up, and the page opened up and says, Well, gentlemen, uh, we're here today, of course, to discuss the workings of the new Model J47-19-Series-B uh, jet propulsion system. I'm, I'm an engineer that has just come in from the plant, as you all know, Al has just introduced me and how Al? Here's <laughs> all written in the script. Say. And I will go on and give you this uh, discussion of this thing and uh, afterwards uh, we'll have a question and answer period. But I have to fly to Detroit and Al will handle the questions. And they said, would you read that again? So I read it again and I said, would you step out for a moment and we'd like to talk it over. So sure enough, they call me back in and one of them says, you've got the job. At that point, I performed, from that minute on, I read the script over and over, and I memorized every last word of it. And the day of the great performance came. Here was the meeting of this, the board meeting of all the high officials of this age, of this, this company, and I was introduced as, a, as, the, as the young engineer from the plant who was the only one who could explain adequately. The real one couldn't talk. I don't know. I never <laughs> met the real one. All, all I know was that for one hour I lectured to these men on this fantastic, it was slides with, with diagrams with a pointer. You were an actor. Of course. And after it was all over, they said there was, there was a beautiful a beautiful presentation, uh, Mr. Sons. I was an engineer for the plant. And at that point, Al took over, whoever he was. He was, he was an actual engineer, mm-hmm. and he right. says, Well, thank you very much, buddy, whatever my name was. Uh, have a good flight back to Detroit. Mm-hmm. And I left, and I threw the, way, I threw the script in the wastebasket on the way out. <laughs> and and uh, uh, as far as I know, uh, I never heard another word mm-hmm. from them. I got a check in the mail, and uh, that was the end of it. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder how many actors are working... Uh, you know, playing the parts of vice presidents and so on at various board presentations throughout the country today. One story I want to get you on next time we get together. Uh, I'm going to make notes. You don't have to. I want you to talk about, I'm here, I'm going to keep the same piece of paper. Okay. You told me something not on the air but off the air one time that I hope you will repeat on the air, the anatomy of the American telethon. uh Uh, give me a few days of your time and we'll do that one you notice I never appear on them I think I know why remembering what I know about that absolutely and there's just so many other things uh, that I want to nail Barry this time has gone so quickly I can't believe it I know Uh, we're all through it's all over don't say that Barry one never admits he's all through I mean uh, let's put it this way this segment is done All the other segments are on their way to be continued (laughs) as life itself. One question, which is almost an invasion of your privacy. Uh, If you'll notice, you're the one untouchable in radio. If I had a favorite cause or a favorite mission or a niece I wanted to help uh, in her ballet uh, or something, I would go to any other broadcaster in the world and say, look, uh, uh, meet her. Uh, talk it over. If you can weasel her into your presentation, uh, if it fits, go ahead. Yeah. Which is an elegant, sensitive way. Some people would just say, hey, give my friend a plug. You know? yeah. With you, I would never, I would resist any attempt to put one word into your blackboard of suggestibility. Why? I, I, it just never occurred to me to come to you and say, Hey, Gene, here's something I'm interested in. Here's a worthy cause. I just Uh, would consider it almost, I was taught never to touch a magnolia blossom. You know what happens if you touch a magnolia blossom? No idea. turns brown. So you were the magnolia blossom? I never tried. (laughs) I know at least a magnolia blossom. Really? That's fascinating. Uh, it would just never occur to me to try to say, hey, Gene, mention this or do this or help this. It's a worthy cause. Mm-hmm. Okay, how worthy the cause is, there's no cause as worthy as leaving Shepherd untrammeled uh, in his trajectory. Thank you very, very much for coming. and uh, Thank you for having me, Barry, and it's been, you know, as always, great. Long may you enrich the air. And likewise. And the books. Thank on the you. stage, and with the great inverted bowl of luck. you working on a great tap dance, too, Barry. What do I spring that on you? If my boss is clever, and if he's listening, then the next time I go in and ask for a raise, he can flatten me with a ray gun by standing up, narrowing his eyes, looking at me and saying, Don't you believe in fringe benefits? How dare you, you asked for well a raise. Don't you consort with Gene Shepard? I mean, doesn't that mean anything? At which point I would shrivel and say, Gee, Chief, I, I think you have a good point. That would there. be an incredible speech. <laughs> Thank you very Thank been great. Thank you very much. You've given me a big list, and I wish we could go on forever, and I hope we will. W-O-R, New York. But more is...